have an update this week from a story we talked about uh, last week, which is the um, the, the the episode where old apps are being removed from the app store because they're quote unquote abandoned. And one of the things that, that you mentioned, Mayo, is that the fact that there's no published criteria for how Apple chooses this, how frequent it happens, just as something that's that's occurred since. Around. It was very opaque rules. Yeah, it's just around around since around 2016 when when the, sort of the App Store editorial became a big thing and um, Phil Schiller took over and a lot of the policy shifted that they started taking away old apps to not you know rather than have like a, we have X number of apps on the App Store look how great we are it's we're going to take away old apps because some of them are just not good some of them are, are abandoned and, and don't work anymore. Well, like Friday night, Apple published. What was you know uh, I, th- I think everything that anybody wanted, which was the criteria for how they choose to, to remove apps, and um, and they and they updated kind of the process around that as well. So the the first thing is what, what they say about how they choose you know what is an abandoned app is they say that um, as part of the app store improvement process, developers of apps that have not been updated within the last three years and fail to meet a minimal uh, download threshold meaning the app has not been downloaded at all or extremely few times during a rolling 12-month period, receive an email notifying them that their app has been identified for possible removal from the App Store. Um, they go on to say, uh, just sort of emphasizing that the program is, is not new and that you know the, the apps that were covered kind of the weekend before <laughs> were like one in a couple million. They say that they yeah, two point eight million. Yeah, <laughs> they say that they've removed two point eight million uh, apps since they began this process. So that's that's a lot of apps to remove, and it it just kind of shows that the the popping up in the press, you know, whenever like maybe they make a bad decision or maybe they make a decision that fits the criteria, but the developer doesn't agree with it. That that's when it becomes a news story. But it, but it has been happening, and um, I read about this story, and I get to look back at our coverage, and you know when, when it first started happening. And, um, I think it was like 40,000 apps that were removed in the, or 50, uh, nearly 50,000 apps were removed in the first month. So compare 50,000 to 2.8 million in, you know, six years time, just about six years time. So it's. Yeah. And the, and the criteria they did actually say were, was fairly reasonable. Like hasn't been updated in three years and the downloads are low. So doesn't, doesn't specify Simple free enough. or paid because one of the, one of the, you know, conspiracy theories because apple hadn't said was maybe this only targets apps where apple isn't making loads of money but the way it's written here even if you even if your app's free if you haven't updated it for a while but it's still getting you know thousands of downloads they're gonna leave it alone so it's only for stuff that has become obsolete in both like functional software update wise and user interest yeah and and because it did make you know the news again this time so it made the news the first time it happened, and then I guess it's made the news over the years a few times. But um, because it was something that caught everyone's attention again this time, they changed the policy from notifying developers and giving them 30 days to comply, you know, to, I guess, update your app, and, and then you're in, um, to 90 days. So you go from having one month, three months to be able to address the issue. Now, I, you know, still, if, if it's a, a factor of you're going to have to spend a lot of money to do that, and it's not worth it, then, you know, one month versus three months doesn't necessarily change that for you, but... Um, they, they did change that at least. So. Yeah, and it is a little stupid in some cases. Like we spoke about the sticker pack situation, yeah, and <laughs> it is very true that the Monster Emoji sticker pack has failed to meet a very uh, high amount of downloads in the last three years because it's never done particularly well. Uh, but they're asking me to update it to keep it on the store. There's nothing to update about it. I'm just going to literally 
bump the version number up in the text file by one and then sure. push it back up again. So I, it's, that's just a way for them to, sh- I guess, just weed out people that have got like abandoned accounts and just aren't caring anymore. So just by making you do the minimum bar, even if functionally the app is going to be identical when it's resubmitted, that's just their way of filtering out stuff. Yeah. And clearly they obviously have some, you know, a monumentous job if they've already removed, you know, almost 3 million apps over the course of, since 2016. Like the whole app store only has about 3 million apps in it. So they basically removed the entire number of apps that are on the store o- over again. Yeah, yeah they've, they've all come back, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> every iPad app times 10. Uh, and then over in the EU, there there are uh, some uh, new waves of regulation and looking at Apple under scrutiny. That, and- that's all that happens in the EU. Yeah, there's, yeah. <laughs> there's, no, there's nothing, you know, there's no, there's no people there. It's just uh, EU commissions <laughs> coming up with anti-competitive yeah, lawsuits. That's, that's right. So the, the new thing, the new, the new complaint of the week is that Apple Pay um we, we kind of talk about this but but um what, what's the latest in terms of, of is apple pay fair uh you know what's, yeah. what's going on <laughs> yeah so we've, we, we we this has come up a few times because we've known for a while that it has been under investigation uh on, on like unofficially especially in when uh the eu hit charges uh, gave apple charges last year over the uh streaming music market complaint where they said that apple music was unfairly favored over rivals like spotify uh in as soon as then we kind of knew they were also investigating the mobile like they call it the mobile wallet market um which to us means apple pay uh, and sure enough this week they came out with formal uh a preliminary view which is basically they write out like a statement of objections that gets uh sent off to apple they then give apple time to respond and then they include apple's response in their ruling on whether like they they supposedly reassess their decision based on apple's reply whether that actually happens or not, who knows? And then it, then they'll announce charges. Then it'll go to court inevitably and take five years to resolve. But like in terms of official charges, this is the first step. They announce a preliminary view. Basically, they're saying that Apple's uh, re- restricts competition by reserving full access to the NF- NFC technology in the iPhone to its own service, Apple Pay and Apple Wallet, and this has caused an exclusionary effect on compares and means that there's less consumer choice for mobile wallet applications. This is a complicated issue because the way that Apple Pay is set up, the way that the NFC system is set up is, I think, quite rightly done uh, selectively for both user experience and for uh, customer safety, customer privacy, because at the end of the day, we're talking about like money transferring hands here. But there's nothing technically preventing Apple uh, from where I stand that would stop them from offering a toggle or an option which says, look discard all of these safety provisions these feature provisions the you know the the fact that you can use apple pay whilst your phone is completely turned off you know on the super low battery mode or without even having to place your finger uh, uh, do fingerprint or do face id with the express mode stuff like i i think there's de- an option this is a, a a potential future option where there would be like a setting somewhere and it would be like, we don't care about any of this stuff, disable Apple Pay entirely, and then you'd get to choose like an alternative app that would take over full control of the NFC chip, would be able to appear and present itself on the lock screen when held near an NFC reader, that kind of thing. It's an entirely... So technically, I think it's possible. It's an entirely separate argument whether Apple should be forced to do that or not, because you could either see Apple Wallet and Apple Pay as like an application, or you could see it as just a feature of the phone. And at what point does... Apple have to cede all control over all elements of a device to provide competition. Like it comes back to that classic question of how do you divide up the market? How do you define the particular market? And in terms of like 
overall transactions done by consumers you know contactless payments and by extension apple pay is still a relatively small percentage of that so what the apple's argument is look apple pay is just one choice of all different ways you can pay on a phone we don't stop you from using a standard credit card or debit card you know you can pay with paypal you can get all these applications through the app store inside of apple wallet itself we are very open to supporting many different payment networks many different providers uh the catch is you know apple gets a a very small percentage share off the top of every single transaction that runs for Apple Pay, like, you know, a cent on the dollar, probably even like tens of cents on the dollar, like is a small amount, but it still counts. And they won't have someone in their system that they haven't got a financial deal with. So that is like the the domineering argument. But there has to be a limit some point of this is just a feature of the phone. It's not a place where third parties can even exist like i always think when i'm and i don't know and who you know obviously the law is the law and but practicality is a different thing and i always think back to like the ipod and the ipod only ever worked with the itunes store or the itunes app on the desktop and the ipod was very dominant like uh, so why and apple made the ipod with the itunes store in mind should they have been forced back then to better support third-party music services or music stores or or in this case, it's more like the application that you connect to your computer, i.e., the iTunes app. Not not alone what you can actually like buy from Apple services through that, just the the the, the application that controls the accessory when you connect it. That's kind of a metaphor with Apple Pay on the iPhone because it's like what piece of software controls the NFC chip on your iPhone. And right now you have no choice; it's the Apple Pay stack all the way down. But what the EU seems to be angling for is that to let other companies maybe like paypal or different banks or other upstarts could make their own mobile wallet experiences could offer their own features on in whatever way they would manifest themselves and they would be able to get you know the primary control over the nfc chip in the way that the apple pay apple wallet app does today uh it's really hard to say one way or another where the where the line should be drawn on that i think i'm gonna try to remember the five thoughts that i've had over the last Mm -hmm. three minutes but uh Let's see, on iTunes, I remember years ago using a program called Senudi, which is iTunes spelled backwards, and it's like an alternative to iTunes. Uh, I think it's like unofficially supported, but it worked. Uh, I think on Windows, kind of like iMazing does today. Right? Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, next thing, if if they really wanted to do something, you know, in the spirit of, of investigation, antitrust, and everything, um, look at the fact that because to, to make an app on the App Store, you need a Mac because you need Xcode, and then you know, force <laughs> force Xcode or some you know equivalent. Uh, you know, maybe even like Microsoft's version and uh, Google's versions of, of app development software for, you know, platforms that aren't the Mac, you know, say, hey, wow, you're, you're forcing app, you know, developers, uh, app makers to use your product all the way down. And then that's the way it is. Uh, maybe that would become an issue if the Mac had market share <laughs> greater than about 4%. Yeah. Yeah. You'd have to yeah. really like, reach the, the, use the apps for angle, not the Mac angle on that one. Um, Next, I was thinking, you know, if if the EU got their way, like, what would it, what would it look look like if Apple were forced to open up the special parts of of Apple Pay, like the way that it performs? Um, because you know, we already know that you can use virtually any debit or credit card in in, in Apple Pay. You know, this many years on, it's you know, it's you're kind of hard pressed to find a card that doesn't work with Apple Pay, but you can, I'm sure. Um, but because the, the Apple Pay is open to nearly any any debit card or credit card, then okay, well, what what would it look like if you wanted just an alternative to Apple Pay? Um, and I suppose you could do like what you'd see is PayPal could have their own, like you'd wave the phone and it would just do a PayPal account and you're never interacting with Apple Pay at all. Yeah. Or, or, uh, Square Cash or, um, the, the banks have Zelle or Venmo could do a thing and like it would just be whatever service you assign. And that's what would be the default 
just like you'd say, you know, what is the default music player or the default, um, you know, web browser. So to just, just uh, I'm more comfortable with the idea of like, well, if they were forced to do this, what it, when I don't know what it would look like, then it's like, well, why are they even bothering? But because I can imagine what it would look like, well, that's not crazy. Like, but then the, the further the further step is okay. If you get on the path of Apple isn't allowed to sort of like sanction hardware or to have special like its services or software to have special access on hardware, the the ultimate uh, destination point of that is well, you can't. A- Apple's not allowed to force iOS on its hardware. Like, there are a lot. You know, the ultimate endpoint uh, in, in there is Apple can sell the hardware, but they're not allowed to force iOS on it. You know. They can offer out of the box, but you've got to give consumers a choice of putting Android on it or like, you know, some open source thing or something, you know. Which just is insane. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, that's the kind of the, because the, I'm, I'm imagining like, well, what's so bad about it if they, if they force that? But I think that's like the, the, the end step there is, well, at some point, iOS itself is, you're, you're not giving consumers enough choice. You know, they can be in the hardware business, but to force the software is too much and, and yeah, that would be that would be wild. Eventually, you get to a point where like none of the things that none of the options that you're requiring Apple to support anybody nobody wants. So that's why it all probably should be based on complaints. <laughs> like, and you need to have enough complaints to say, okay, well maybe this isn't fair, and not just you know in theory is it fair? Or no, okay, well let's force it, and then nobody actually wants it. So, hmm. and in the aggregate, at least right now, the I don't see the fears of like Apple's monopolization of nfc on the iphone as like tangible problems that are actually affecting customers because the apple pay experience is really good there's like almost no fees like the fees that apple do charge on the thing would be you know they're, they're pretty minimal and they're no any competitive service that was doing the same thing would, would charge very similar fees to do the exact same role so price wise it doesn't seem like there's much of a there's much weight to it functionality wise you know apple pays like fantastic and i think a lot of people would say it's better than the google equivalent and you know what's available on other phones so it doesn't feel like apple's like dragging its feet and they don't and then it's not like the app store where they are collecting insane percentages on transactions when like apple pay is apple making the stuff right like they're they're making the features like the app store the biggest like offensiveness of the app store situation is that people perceive it as apple's getting 30 percent of basically 30% of the profit of what everybody else is making for them. And so there's like a harm there and there's no alternative to negotiate the 30% down. Whereas when it comes to Apple Pay, at least so far, it doesn't feel like Apple's overstepped the line of using their dominance for evil, as it were. Although you can then make the counterpoint that the Apple Card is integrated into the wallet app experience and there's other stuff there and there's still the push, the ongoing rumours that the buy now, pay later thing is going to turn up in Apple Pay someday. Uh, soon so again that's maybe an argument that like why can't other bail now pay laters have the exact same prominence on the device and someone's got to make a decision somewhere on where you draw the line on what stuff apple's actually allowed to do and not be not sh- be shown as anti-competitive because otherwise we just end up in a situation where every single app on the iphone is like a toggle switch where you can use apple's version and use something else like at some point you have to say like this is the domain of the manufacturer uh and when Apple was smaller, like on the Mac, like the Mac model, apart from the, the the relaxation of how stuff's installed, like the Mac model isn't too far apart from an iPhone, really. I know like there's more flexibility on the software you can install in terms of what you can do to the system and stuff. But, you know, the Mac still has like, here's the pre-installed apps, here's the services. And Apple chooses that. They choose the UI. You can't change out like 
the window manager of the Mac very easily, if at all, and all of this stuff. But it's just never become a problem because the Mac's market share has been tiny. Uh, iOS, the iPhone, is just so big that now they're under so much scrutiny. And it is true that the climate around big tech in general is one of um, punishment at the moment and, you know, trying to trying to curb their incredible dominance. Like, out of the pandemic, still, like, they're, you know, all the big tech companies got, like, twice as valuable in market cap-wise. So, and, everyone, and all the smaller companies kind of struggled in many ways. So, it's, like, it's just all, a, like, a confluence of factors that is now setting sights on the iPhone. And I think if you look at the App Store stuff, a lot of that is justified or arguable or debatable when you start getting to the realm of apple pay it's less a lot le- a lot more murky to me about whether it's really a fair argument or not yeah well you heard it here first iphone and, and software sold separately <laughs> when you when you check out you have to like go down a, ch- a checklist and choose which apps you want to pre-install like yeah. uh do i want music do i want spotify do i want this do i want apple pay do i want my banks app like i don't know like i know and this is kind of irrelevant to the legal argument, but I trust Apple to make a nice payment experience and banking experience way more than the banks because all the banking apps are terrible. So if the if if the access to like say because a risk is that any app is allowed to be the NFC primary app now, and so a bank that previously supported Apple Pay left the system, so the only way you could use it on the iPhone was to like use their app and set it as the default. So let's say my bank is Santander. And their app isn't their bank app isn't isn't great. It's not te- it's not the worst one I've ever used, but it's not great. And but let's just imagine that they left Apple Pay thing, so the only way I could use my bank card with contactless on the iPhone was to install their app and have that be the primary experience. They're only going to support their own bank in there, their own card. What Apple Pay does is it unifies all sorts of banks and and hotel passes and all sorts of other things as well. So like Apple Pay does a lot, and it is pretty equitable in who can use it. Uh, at, at the highest level whereas if you went to a system where it was like a free-for-all i feel like you'd, the end result for the consumer would be obviously or no, pretty likely to be worse so i'm not so keen on this particular lawsuit the apple music one's a bit fairer because it's tied to the app store but the the apple pay stuff in the eu right now i don't feel like it has much legs but that's different to the legal argument which we'll have to see how it plays out in the coming months happy hour is sponsored this week by Nutrafol. You can preempt thinning hair with Nutrafol's whole body approach to hair growth. No drugs and no compromises. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement, clinically shown to improve your hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage. And it is 100% drug free, formulated by physicians using natural botanical ingredients. Nutrafol's hair growth nutraceuticals go beyond genetics to multi target the root causes of thinning, including stress hormones, nutrition, aging, and lifestyle with whole body health. In a clinical study, men showed progressive improvement in hair growth and thickness after three and six months, respectively. It's also trusted and recommended by more than 3,000 top doctors. Physician formulated using natural medical-grade ingredients, Nutrafol's drug-free patented technology provides consistent and reliable results without compromising your sexual health. You can grow thicker, healthier hair, and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code HAPPYHOUR to save $15 off your first month subscription. This is their best offer available anywhere, and it's only available to US customers for a limited time. Plus, get free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com. That's spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code HAPPYHOUR. 
One more time, Nutrafol.com, promo code happy hour. Thanks to Nutrafol for sponsoring the show. Yeah, thanks, Nutrafol. They're a new sponsor for us, and they sent me a sample, and it's as easy as taking a vitamin. So um, check them out and support the show. Thanks. Uh, next this week, we have uh, a book review. Uh, this is the new book, uh, After Steve, How Apple Became a Trillion-Dollar Company and Lost Its Soul by Trip Mickle. And uh, Mayo, I don't know how you feel about the the subtitle there, <laughs> but, but it, it's uh, it's it's one of those things where it, it would it turns me off, you know. If if the premise of the book is that Apple lost its soul, then I'm you know like at first I have to think about well, do I feel like do I feel like I agree with that? And if I'm if I don't, then I'm like, well, then I don't want to read the book, <laughs> you know. But um, our our former colleague Parker uh, Ordolani, who's uh, he he shared some some he he got approved of the book and he was sharing some stories from within or sort of teasing them out and so it, it piqued my curiosity and so I, I reached out to the book publisher and asked for a uh, an advanced copy of the book and um, received it last month and and actually quite enjoyed reading it um, not because I agree with all of the sort of editorializing within there isn't a whole lot of it fortunately. Um, and not because it was like a whole new world that I hadn't been exposed to, but just because for the most part, it was a, a kind of an enjoyable walk down the memory lane of the last eight or nine or 10 years of headlines, which is, you know, nine years is how long I've been at nine to five max. So it's like, you know, a career of uh, Apple news coverage in a book. And, um, you know, the narrative there, it's, 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 it's kind of split between Tim Cook's rise, you know, as CEO after the death of Steve Jobs and then Apple's, you know, growing in value from the days of wall street being unsure if, if any company, if anybody could lead Apple after Steve jobs. And then, you know, now it's what a $3 trillion company. Um, and then the other half of the book is spent looking at Johnny Ives really, you know, his time at Apple after Steve jobs to the point where he ends up retiring. And what was it? 2019 just before the mm-hmm. pandemic. And, um, and also I, I listened to uh, a podcast, uh, pivot and, um, Trip Mickle was a guest on, on on Pivot this past week, and I, I've never heard him speak before on a podcast, and I don't know him personally at all. And even like with the book review, I think there was an opportunity to speak with him and maybe have him on the podcast. And I, I just I don't you know I just wanted to like read the book and then review it based on like what I think about it and not have any um, you know concern about what the the author thinks about what I think about the book. Um, but the way he put it to, to Kara Swisher on on that podcast was that the the subtitle. It wasn't like a defense of the subtitle, but it was just like an explanation. How Apple became a trillion dollar company. That's the Tim Cook part. And then lost its soul is the Johnny Ive part. And he means it as in like Johnny was the soul of the company in terms of like the, like the, you know, something has soul, like spirit, like, you know, uh, feeling into it and that Johnny Ive left. And so those two things happened. Johnny left and the company became super valuable. Um, after Steve died. And so, uh, <laughs> which, I mean, that's a tenuous. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's that's not how you read it if you read it as Co- a correct until uninformed he, perspective buyer of the book yeah i mean the, the obvious read is that but to, to for apple to have become a trillion dollar company it had to have lost its soul <laughs> like it sold its soul um and so like, like the, the implication from that title is apple and and th- this book has tim cook and johnny ive on the cover right yeah, yeah. and the the the, the title of the book is After Steve, and the mm-hmm. subtitle is Apple Became a Trillion Dollar Company and Lost Its Soul. So the setup of that subtitle is like 
Tim Cook, the subtext that you immediately draw is Tim Cook took over. He made the company boring to and optimized money making. Sure. Like profit and, and over. Maybe even that, that the only soul was within Steve and then he's gone and, you know, Tim Cook had no soul. But yeah. I, I actually, yeah. And, and as if, as if like Johnny Ive was kicked out of the company so that Apple could become super rich or like just optimize for money and operations rather than the soul of the company and the, you know, like. I don't buy what you just what you just said there on the podcast, or, well, or that you re- repeat on the podcast, because it's not it's just not what anybody sensible is going to read from that title unless you hear that explanation. <laughs> I don't know. I also, I mean, if there, if there one thing I were to ask him, it would be, do you write the subtitle yourself, or like, you know, do you name the book even, like, because I know with with online publishing, so much of it is like you write the article and then the headline is is whatever the headline writer writes, and that it's mm-hmm. sometimes sensationalized for you know to optimize for traffic and you know, clicks, and and sometimes the author might wholly disagree with the headline but they wrote the story you know um i don't know but uh i i, I will say i did prefer reading the book without the, the jacket the jacket cover on it you know where it's just the book plain and, not, and no subtitle and no picture so um but yeah it, it, it was it was parker teasing out the stories with them that made me want to read it and i really did like it was one of those things where I, I read it over the span of a couple of days and i'm not a big reader so for that to catch my attention keep it my attention was pretty good um and then just like in general i you know what i recommend it yeah, if you like this podcast, and you'll probably enjoy this the the book, you know. But um, let's talk about some things that are there inside of it before you know anything else. So, so the the first thing that I in, in the book review that I published on Nine to Five Mac, I, I pulled out some stories. It's about um, Scott Forstall and a couple of things that I found interesting. Um, the first thing was, you know, if you recall back in 2013, 2014, there's all this pressure on Tim Cook to release the next big thing to prove that he can be the CEO of Apple after Steve Jobs and, you know, what's going to be after the iPhone. And looking back, it was the Apple Watch that was the first big product push. Um, maybe maybe the, the push was was bigger than the reception in the beginning, at least, but that's that's what happened. But there is a story about how Forstall's pitch was um, a product around TV and that Johnny Ives was about the Apple Watch. And the book says that Forstall was highly skeptical of the Apple Watch idea when he was at the company because it to to promote something to relief this like you know kind of think about the idea of the Apple Watch and when it was announced it was like part of it was like alerts that are on your phone so you're not as distracted they're on your wrist and you can dismiss them if you don't want them um thought that it would be too distracting and that it could kind of because the iPhone was Forstall's baby it could kind of make the iPhone look bad if you're trying to say this is to prevent a problem that that caused um, and then his counter offer was kind of an Apple service around TV in some in some form. What, what do you what do you think about? Yeah, that? Yeah, may, maybe a television set. It wasn't actually clear from Mickle's writing whether he was talking about physical hardware just as service. Yeah, layer. yeah. I think what the book makes clear is that you know we all know the Steve Jobs. You know he cracked the you know TV in his biography, um, and nobody knows what that means because he didn't clearly didn't tell anybody like what he had in mind. But it was like. The quote is like, you know, the simplest user interface and easy to use. And he, he cracked the TV experience. Um, and I think like the likelihood of, of what it meant is like probably close to what we have now with tvOS and, you know, <laughs> the way that. Yeah, well, one of the um, out of some of the trial documents, you know, those. Um, so top 100 was where Jobs and I believe it still happens under Cook, but it was more of a, a Jobs thing. Basically, he would do a retreat of top executives plus a f- employees that he valued right who had obviously impressed him recently and he would take 100 people off to some 
nice place and they would do like a week-long series of presentations where they talked like big picture company stuff on each of the product lines and the idea with that was that jobs would you know present his vision for where apple was going and the top executives would do demos and stuff and a few of the like the the, the bullet point notes of these events have or uh, of these presentations at top 100 have leaked out as part of the samsung trial samsung apple trial and stuff like that and one of them was from the samsung trial and one of the uh bullet points it was talking about apple tv and it talks about the uh the apple tv box that obviously did release in 2010 you know the cheaper one the 99 cent rentals and then for in like further down these bullet points it says like magic wand question mark um <laughs> under the apple tv section and these these bullet points have this is one of the uh, we talked about this on the show before one of the, this is the same email that says that apple was going to make a 15 inch macbook air right and this email's from yeah. 2010 and obviously it didn't happen so a lot of this was like speculative or just like bouncing off random ideas but the magic wand thing i don't think it's too far away from what ended up as the Siri remote in a way like maybe you directed the pointer by moving like more like a Wiimote, like or, a Wii remote an rather LG than a remote which is or an lg magic, exactly yeah. like what the lg magic remotes do rather than a trackpad but if he's if it's 2010 and jobs has written down like magic wand he's not he's not it's not like some crazy alternate dimension of ui that no one's ever thought of before right so when he says he finally cracked it, he's the only one. He's the only person we have on record that that's going on. It's it doesn't seem like there was like skunkworks teams inside Apple at the sure. time designing some crazy prototype or anything like that. And this book certainly doesn't illuminate that in any way. And there was even and what makes it what makes this whole story slightly more confusing is that Walt Mossberg has said that Jobs had called him up before he died and said, uh, "I've got I'm working on this TV thing. It's really exciting. In six months, I want to give you a demo." And yeah. For everything we've seen since, it clearly didn't materialize, like, or it didn't exist in the way that the 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 Isaacson's biography makes it sound like it did. Because if if that was true, surely the quote about Forster would be referencing the project that was dumped after Jobs died or something, right? Like, so so far, like all of that, we finally cracked it. Stuff is like a bizarre offshoot that doesn't seem grounded in any sort of like internal prototype form at all. Um, but it is interesting that what uh, Mikkel quotes his full still pitching was like a, a TV experience where you'd have content from different networks all into one and you could use like your voice to find shows and it would suggest things to you and ov- obviously Forstall got axed and he got kicked out of the company but like that vision of television is kind of what they did pursue anyway like but between 2012 and 2015 Apple was talking with Disney Fox like all the big networks um, about doing a skinny bundle of channels. This has been reported all over the place, including at the time, uh, where you pay somewhere in the region of $30 and you get content from, you know, six or seven of the big networks, like the best channels. You wouldn't yeah. get like the, the laundry list of cable that's $100 was, a month. It would be a like skinny a, bundle, as though. A skinny bundle, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was always used. Yeah, and obviously Apple never quite got the deals together to make it happen. So then they resorted back to a more like, not, I guess it's not conventional, but less ambitious plan where they would just make the TV app an aggregator of the content. They wouldn't actually vend the deals themselves. And then fast forward another two years, they started making original content too. But they never they never got to the point of just like, you pay us one fee and we'll give you content from Disney and ESPN, all these places. Like They were trying to get a deal like that in place, but it never came together. And I think the general UI of the TV app that we see today on the Apple TV came from 
development inside working towards that original skinny bundle goal. Sure. And then obviously that stuff got cut, cut out of it and it just became an aggregator for third-party app content. Um, but that but that vision is basically what's described as Fullstool's pitch in 2011. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and around that time, like, you know, a couple of years later, um, when, when that kind of the Apple's making a TV service that is an Apple TV Plus content originals, you know, mm-hmm. It, you know, Re- Recode was heavily reporting, uh, Peter Kafka specifically, you know, had a lot of good information. Um, that, that was like Apple's pitch is that they won't handle the actual streaming part of it. It'll be from the, the network providers that, you know, they won't, they're not going to be in control of the, the servers. You know, you, you <laughs> it was like very specific as to how it was going to work and what they were pitching. And of course, it just never, never happened. Um, one of the differences I remember were going to be that, that Apple's version of this would have local channel. Like they, they wanted the, the local ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox affiliates to have, to provide the local coverage where, yeah. you know, th- this is before you had like Hulu with live TV and YouTube TV. And, um, if, I don't know if you recall, but, but Sony had a pretty good product that was close to what Apple was putting together with, with PlayStation. TV of some kind, I think it was called, it was like PS, I don't know, it was, it was, it was PlayStation branded, but it was a version of like live TV. Um, and it went away, unfortunately, but it was pretty good. Um, but Apple's never done that. And, and, and that, I guess that was kind of Scott's core division though, was, was whatever on TV, better, better user interface for it. But it was like, let's take on TV, uh, it, it, not in like an on demand way, but like the, the way that you see TV, um, back then, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, but the watch went out and, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, you can do both obviously, but I think, I think most of the narrative was, was, was really that, you know, a force had a different vision, but also that he was not so sure about the watch. I think the way that it was put was that he was, um, he preached caution is what the book says. And that he argued that it should have capabilities beyond what the iPhone could do. Now, later in the, in the book, when they get into actual Apple watch development, you know, way after force has been gone, there are some pretty interesting stories again you know you have to trust trip Mickle as to whether these happened or not or how they happened and it's it's all reporting but um there, there's a story about johnny ive demonstrating the apple watch to like the, the the first team at apple and it was literally an ipod nano with an ekg adapted to work on it so that you could demonstrate doing an ekg i guess one lead ekg which you know did come to the series four apple watch but that they were shooting for it for the first one they were um they had, they had acquired the company that was doing, you know, uh, the glucose work with blood work. And, um, they said they could, they couldn't do that. There was, uh, a team working on like mood detection through sweat. And then they decided it was too hard. And also why did the watch need to give you your mood? Because you knew your mood. Although I think you could argue that there is some, like, if the watch could detect, d- detect your stress level through sweat, like chemical reactions and sweat over time, like having it documented, you could see trends. I think there is value in that. Um, but again, uh, it seems like a lot of the things are just that they, that they want to do with the watch. Eventually they had envisioned in the beginning and they were just too hard. And what you actually got was, you know, iPhone mini, like iPhone light, you know, and, um, just, just a lot, very different. And that we haven't even seen like the, the, the original goal of the watch of being very capable in health yet. You know, it took the EKG four versions to get there. And, um, you know, we haven't seen anything with, with, with blood glucose yet. Um, I, again, like when I read it, uh, you know, in the book was like, and, and the, and people inside Apple were like, why would you even want to know your mood? Why would the Washington to tell you your mood? You know, was, cause you already know it. It's like, yeah, it's, it's true. Huh? Um, but when I think more about it, if they could ever do that, 
if there's actually like chemical reactions that they could look at, look at and sweat and then try to, you know, try, try it over time, that'd be interesting, I think. But uh, well, well, the infamous um, breather reminders, like not, not it. No, if it, could, <laughs> if, if, if it could actually know that you were stressed out, it'd be a, an intelligent breather reminder to chill out, you know, or do some mindfulness versus yeah. the we're just doing it once every five hours or whatever. Sure. And then the watch is an interesting thing, right? Because obviously part of this book's presentation is Johnny and I have left, so Apple's in trouble now, right? Because he was the, quote, soul of the company. Um, but obviously the watch was very much Ives' baby, but it came out and it didn't, it wasn't like a smash success out the door. And arguably some of the points that seemed to not be Ives' vision, like the fitness side, were what Apple ended up having to focus on to make it a successful product, you know? So like, Ives was not an infallible person. And I'm not sure how well, you've obviously read the whole book, but from just the snippets I've seen, I'm not sure how well that comes across as if like, is I've seen as like the God that is just unbelievably good. And so the fact that like, or, or does it like question his, his own judgment in a way, you know the, what I mean? The, the book, I would say that it almost, um, it, it portrays Tim Cook as just so much more hands off a product than Steve Jobs ever was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some, which is true, which has got to be true, right? Cause yeah. Steve Jobs was the most hands on CEO of any company in the world. Right. Yeah. Like, I don't. I, what I don't know is whether it's only a contrast in the sense that the the, the founder was so exceptionally out of left field in that yeah. way. Like, is is Tim Cook more involved in product than any other company in the S and P five hundred? Like, you have to assume so, right? Like, but it's not clear. Yeah. yeah. What what the book is pretty heavy on is is sort of portraying Johnny Ives marketing vision for the watch is being so fashion heavy and that he didn't think it could especially with what was shipping in the originally when you didn't have some of the health features that they were working on early on mm-hmm. that that fashion was such a big part of it and that no matter how cool it was if people didn't want to wear it as fashion then it didn't matter you know what it did and that it was that it you know i guess i'll add some analysis to this but but the book sort of portrays what we saw in reality which is that you know there was fashion heavy marketing have you know in the beginning and then even though there were fitness and health in the beginning as well, they leaned way heavier on fitness and health after the first version, you know, the, the second version and, and, and on. It was always, it was always, you know, they had a Nike version. Um, and, they, and they still did, you know, they got rid of the edition edition, but they had, you know, Hermes and ceramic. And um, I think, I think my analysis would be that, that maybe they skewed too far off from fashion for the watch and, and, kind of in my vision now like just the way i see it um it would almost be no sh- surprise if one year they just didn't have steel models at all you know and, and yeah and they, it was just the apple watches are the aluminum models because of the price point and because that's what sells the most in volume and you know it's probably it, like it probably benefits apple almost none to have the steel models even though i think that there's value in that for people like me who care about the way it looks too not just how it works and there's like an aspirational element to it, I think, where like sure. yeah. it almost exists so that when you buy the sport model, you don't feel as bad about it. I don't know, in a way. Like, <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's like an anchoring effect almost as much as anything. And like, But they do look pretty. Like, <laughs> it's true. But you, if you just look at raw sales, the sport models are by far the most popular by a mile. Like, the, amount of, the amount of stainless steel and other uh, material watches I see in the wild is infinitesimally small compared to sport models it's so, insane so, yeah so what i'll say i guess is that um i mean i don't think the book makes this analysis but i do think that there is value loss in the apple watch with apple pulling off of the initial um pitch into fashion because something i do notice is that uh, i 
like even though it's product placement and it's like Apple gifted Katy Perry this watch and so she wears it or Beyonce this this all gold version and so it's worn like that is influential and and that does change, like convince people that you know the watch has to be cool for it to be popular and for mm-hmm. it to take off and I think they've taken their foot off the, the the gas on that way in a big way in terms of how it's marketed and it's just left up to like the, the fashion part of it is just. If it's, a, if it's popular, not enough. And it's almost like, I think, I think now the, when I look out at the watch, it's like everyone has it in terms of like everyday life. But then when yeah. you, when you look at like in, in the fashion regard, then it's almost like, well, it's, it's, it's invisible there. It's actually not even considered there because it needed Apple's push for that to be true or someone at Apple to care about that part of it for it to be true, which, you know, for the bottom line, probably it's better that just everybody, you know, normal people have it and it's not visible in fashion. Um, but you know, I, I think like I watch a lot of like makeover shows like that. And usually the watch goes away in the, in the, like the, the makeover fix <laughs> just to kind of put it, put it, you know, that way. So. Happy hour this week is also brought to you by ladder. You know, I started wearing glasses this year and, that kind of thing, it kind of hit me like, oh, damn, I'm, I'm getting older. And stuff like life insurance somehow feels immediately a lot more relevant. Life insurance gives you peace of mind to know that your family will be taken care of if the worst happens. And while Ladder has taken the life insurance industry, modernized it for a digital world and shook out the inefficiencies, as you are reminded just how fragile life is, it makes sense where people get life insurance, especially term coverage, which is surprisingly affordable. You just pay a little bit each month to protect the ones that you love. If you're thinking about this stuff, then why not choose Ladder for your life insurance plan? Ladder is a 100% digital service when you apply for $3 million in coverage or less. That means no doctors, no needles, and no paperwork. It's all done online. You just need a phone or laptop to apply, you fill out Ladder's application form, and their smart algorithms will work in real time and tell you instantly if you're approved. And if you prefer to talk to a real human, Ladder has a team of licensed agents to discuss your options with, and they don't work on commission-based pay. So that means they are there to help you and not to upsell you. Ladder has no hidden fees, and you can cancel at any time. You can even get a full refund if you cancel within the first 30 days. And Ladder's policies are issued by insurers with long, proven histories of paying claims. So if you've been thinking about getting life insurance, Ladder is the place to do it. If you aren't sure, but you just want more information, go on Ladder's website, fill out their online calculator, and you can see the costs and terms of the plan with no commitment. And as the cost of life insurance goes up as you age, now is the time to act and get it done. So go to ladderlife.com slash happy hour today to see if you're instantly approved. That's ladderlife, L-A-D-D-E-R-L-I-F-E dot com slash happy hour. One more time, ladderlife.com slash happy hour. Thanks to Ladder for sponsoring the show. Another part of the book that um, was enjoyable for me was not just the kind of walk down memory lane of the headlines over the years and this is what happened, you know, the narrative, but, but also things that I would say are just original reporting and hadn't been said elsewhere before, you know, uh, by Trip Nickel, let's say. And, uh, one, one thing is, is that Forstall apparently, according to Trip Nickel, had experience with Antanagate before it was a thing out in public, you know, and if you, <laughs> if you recall back in 2010, this is the iPhone 4 dropping calls whenever your, your scan contacts antenna lines. Um, and, and Apple, of course, you know, gave out free cases to, um, you know, address this, said that there really wasn't an issue. And as much as it, it was an issue, it affected every other smartphone at the time. And then, of course, they, they re-engineered the iPhone um, 4S to, to, you know, have less of an issue. But anyway, the, what the book says, though, is that 
Forstall originally was experiencing drop calls, or his team was, with the iPhone 4 as a prototype. And that he, because he was in charge of software, he thought that the problem was software-related and called kind of a, a hands-on meeting with his staff to fix it. And when they found that there were no coding issues, that it was determined that it was a hardware problem and it was because of the antenna design. And that, that sort of began, you know, or was a key moment of Scott Forstall versus Johnny Ive, where he he felt like the design of the phone was impacting the experience in a way that was outside of his control, you know. And then that that Johnny Ive did not like the criticism from Forstall, but that created some conflict there. But you know, just to take, just to take it to uh, just the reporting of that, you know, I don't know that we knew that before, or you know, insofar it's accurate, insofar as it is accurate um, that has been reported that there was antenna gate debate before the phone came out. Or that Forrestal. Yeah, I think there were rumors like that people inside Apple knew of the flaw, the design. Like I don't know if you want to call it a flaw. Behavior, you know? yeah. yeah, behavior, yeah. Um, drawback or like consequence of going with the external um, antenna design that they did. Like there was rumors around the time, but I mean that was a lot of speculation. There wasn't any hard sourcing on it, and sure. like Trip Mickle is definitely the most reliable, like respected person that I've heard, I've seen write this down. If you see what I mean, and. The fact that Forster himself came up with it as well, and back in those days, like, like, hey, if you're going to take the lost, it, like Apple lost its soul, so that's bad. I.e., Apple lost Johnny Ive, that's bad. I think a lot of people would say that Johnny Ive made the wrong call. Like, Antenna Gate was a huge issue, and they mitigated it with future design revisions. So, like, in that way, Johnny Ive was just wrong. So, <laughs> <laughs> Apple losing its soul in that regard might have been a good thing, you know. And like back in those days, Jobs was still alive. He obviously played like bouncer, middleman, like negotiator between the the software side run by Forster and the hardware side run by Ive. And when Jobs died, Ive took the top job. Uh, even before, like he actually took the top job. Yeah. Like uh, you know, the the hardware team clearly thought that they had priority, uh, and that was one of the contributing factors as to Forster's you know friction or getting pushed to sidelined he obviously wasn't happy and the apple max debacle was like the last straw in a very long stick yeah it, the, the way the book the book puts it is um that that Forstall blasted the flawed design in conversations with jobs and complained that it, it was hidden from his software team so Forstall's complaint was that they made the software for the iphone 4 and then they were you know the actual product was bad and it was out of their control and they they had no influence over it until it was you know about to be released so um i thought, I thought that was interesting um and, and then there's kind of a really entertaining story around Apple Car and how this uh, is so good. Yeah, uh, uh, around Apple Car and how it was, you know, I mean, we 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 all know like this Apple Car story is really old in terms of how long the rumors been out there. You know, I think it was uh, what what year did we get the first story that it was going to be by 2019 that that Apple was going to release, the, you know, their car. Um, it was February 2015. Yeah. Okay. So that was when it began. Cool. I, I remember being on an airplane that was like on the in-flight TV coverage of CNBC, and you know, I, I was at, I was on Apple campus <laughs> while that was happening. <laughs> I was headed to. That was, I was, was headed. To, I was headed to Sonos in California, not not too far from where you are. But. I was on Apple campus, and there were Apple employees discussing the rumor that they oh, were making good. a car. <laughs> it was hilarious. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's uh, a spring or so, or February, and then the book says that in in the fall. Um, I'll just read this. One day in the fall of 2015, I've met Tim Cook and Sunny Val to show him how he envisioned the car working. 
He imagined that the vehicle would be voice controlled and passengers would climb in and tell Siri where they wanted to go. The two executives entered the prototype of a lounge-like cabin interior and sank into seats. Outside, an actor performed as Siri and read from a script that had been written for the fanciful demonstration. As the imaginary car sped forward, I pretended to peer out of its window. Hey, Siri, what was that restaurant we just passed? He asked. <laughs> the actor outside responded. A few other exchanges with the executives followed. Afterward, I've exited the car with a look of satisfaction upon his face as if the future were even grander than he'd imagined. He seemed oblivious to the engineers looking on, some of whom were gripped by a worried feeling that the project was as fictional as a demonstration, moving fast but nowhere near his final destination. So just, I mean, I would describe that as awkward. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I mean, there's still like to this day, there's, there's you know, this, this past week, Apple hired somebody from Ford who has like 30... My Siri is, is talking to me. I'm so sorry. It doesn't happen very often. Is, is it an actor reading <laughs> off uh, yeah, a future it's, it's, AI uh, that's Su- incredibly Su- sentient? Susan, oh, what's it? Trevor being Siri. But that's, uh, you know, that is just entertaining. Um, and it just shows, like, how much was going on early on in the first few years of Apple Car development and, like, the, the think about it and that we're not there yet. But Apple, I mean, today alone there was a patent that was related to this exact thing and then Apple had hired a Ford executive this week who – um, I guess his his experience in like some safety and and sort of could could hint that it's you know, closer to shipping because it's something that is a later step in the process. But um, at any rate, you know the the project has that lasted. I've and at least in terms of like how long he's you know still there for these days. But and in 2015, it was absolutely ridiculous <laughs> to like think that you better have a, a self driving car. I.e., this is a this is like. Tim Cook and I are sitting in like a lounge cabin, not at a wheel. Like the car's just driving itself, and you had someone pretending to be a super intelligent Siri that could help you along the way. Like we haven't even got the the Siri part, let alone the car part. And this is you know <laughs> se- seven years on, and the car situation is not is still very unclear. Like I know the rumors keep saying that Apple wants to ship a fully self driving car uh, in twenty twenty five, but it f- still feels so fictional and like off in the future uh could they make a car that drives itself in to certain places in certain geographies in certain areas maybe they can do that but then there's no way in 2025 there's going to be a self-driving car that can just go anywhere in any even anywhere in the u.s and just drive itself and doesn't need a steering wheel and this has been reported by many people that around 2015 ive and his team had like lost touch with the reality of the project and we're just off in the off in the headspace making you know globe steering wheels no steering wheels any designs they could think of without care for like whether it's actually possible whether it can apply to safety laws and, and legal requirements and you know any realm of practicality uh this is where their headspace was at and it just this is like where i'd love to see more information on exactly how like the the, obviously the car project isn't going to be broken down in detail until well after it comes out because that's just how these things work but this has been such a tumultuous thing that like what was the engineering to engineering team thinking when johnny i've invited tim cook over they sit in this completely made up car that's not actually driving but pretending to drive and you've got someone on the outside reading a script pretending to be a an AI that can control the car. Like, it's just insane. <laughs> it's just insane. A, a, a bit ahead of itself. Later in the book, there is, there's uh, a mention that, that at some point I've 
took his design team off of the car entirely because they didn't think it was worth it because it was, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't worth their time because it wasn't happening. Um, and if, you know, there's been so many reboots of that, that one thing about the car is that unlike the watch, which had a pretty short, you know, experience from, you know, the idea to shipping, um, that, that there was room for Apple to do some storytelling about the, the origins and with the car, there's like no room for that. You know? <laughs> no detail hasn't been reported yet. You know, they can't romanticize the history of the Apple car. It's like, we had this idea and all this stuff. So yeah. <laughs> I also think it's an interesting like juncture in like Apple's history where they'd finally reached the point where they became so big that they could like design stuff that they couldn't actually make. <laughs> like, like all the way up to that point, Johnny Ive was like designing little things that go in your pocket or things that could go on your wrist or little things that go, you know, like laptops and computers. And even if they design an Apple TV set, like all of these things were in the realm of possibility. And then around 2015, they started work on the car project, which was like a fanciful pipe dream that we're still waiting to materialize. And the AR headset project was also around that time where they're inventing stuff that was way, way off into the future. Like take the iPhone, right? The iPhone it was on and off inside of Apple for five years, six years. But practically, the design of the iPhone that shipped in 2007 was done in late 2005, right? Like, the window of shipping is just so minute. Same with the iPad. It was designed around 2008. It shipped in 2010. The Apple Watch, it was designed in 2013. It came out in 2015, you know? Like, the timeframes there were so much more compressed because they were in, still in the realm of like small bits of hardware that they could actually make. Like anything that Johnny Ivan and his team were, were dreaming up at that time, they could actually do it, right? And then somewhere in the middle of the last decade, they jumped to, we're designing a car, but to do even do a demo, we're going to have to make a human pretend to be a robot. You know, like there's just some disconnect there. Like it ties into the soul argument because it's like, because part of the book is about Tim Cook having to like rein in the design team and rein in the the quote gods of human interface uh, with practical operation stuff. And obviously, in the book, it's presented in the negative, like you know, cost cutting and and focus on prof- profit margins were overtaking design. But there's also just sheer practicality concerns of could all this stuff they were dreaming up actually come out in any particular way? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And and to think of the you know, there's of course there's reporting over the years of the car. You know, some of its just raw origins are um, Tim Cook wanting to give Johnny Ive like the control to do things that he's interested in enough so that he stays on an Apple, so that you know you you retain the Mac and the iPhone designer by giving him a, a project that is ambitious enough to keep his attention, because just doing the next iteration of iPhone, you know, that has a new design every few years, or Mac that has a new design every half decade, like that wasn't going to be enough. And if that's the origin of the car project, and it, it, you know, he's he's still left, uh, and you've got all this, you're invested in this project so heavily that, you know, one, one of the things I think about with the car is that you know you, you see Tesla iterate in public with with electric cars and autonomous driving, um, and every other car maker these days has, you know. Not as ambitious, but practically useful features of lane control. And, you know, it isn't like Tesla has a level of self-driving that is just from another planet compared to any other car maker. You know, they're just, they just, it's just the way that it's marketed for the most part. And I'd say they've got a slight edge. (laughs) 
<laughs> a slight edge based major, on what I've seen. They have a major edge in marketing, but I'm always impressed when I'm in another car, when I'm in a, someone else's car and they have features that I would consider like Tesla features. Um, yeah, exactly. Like in terms of like their, their self-driving ability is better than the competition, but it's not like anywhere close to the Delta that it's like presented as. You yeah. Know? So, so I think what I would say is that, that if, if Apple, I think that Apple with the car wants to do something that is unlike anything that's on the market today they want to make a splash and they're like we're not just doing what everyone else is doing but better because well i mean it's pretty clear they want to fulfill the dream of what tesla wants to be right but yeah. no one else has actually got no one including tesla has got there yet <laughs> and, and is it is it practical to to do that internally and never ship a product or is it better exactly, to have yeah. you know customer data i guess but yeah um there's, there's there's several other stories i won't spoil them all but there's there's you know I mean, one thing that I found interesting and included in the review, a photo of at least, is that the photographer of the um, Apple Johnny Ives design book, um, designed by Apple in California, like he was also working on some other projects at Apple, and including sort of a documentary internally about the uh, Apple Park design and everything. And um, that at some point he made a comment that someone at Apple didn't like, and as a result was audited, and his work was audited, and that Apple wanted it back almost twenty million dollars, which was about what he earned from making the book. And at this at this point, like Johnny Ive is nearly out of the company, and the guy goes to Johnny and he's like, you know, what what can you do? And he's like, nothing. You know, this is Tim Cook. But um, there's there's some like some kind of awkward things like that in the book. Um, there's a mention of an iPad from 2015 that the team that the design team had come up with that uh, I think some employees had commented and said that it was the first part they'd want to pay retail price for because it was just that good. Uh, and that operations wouldn't approve it or Tim Cook wouldn't approve it because of how much of an investment it would take in manufacturing that it would take so long to, re- you know, recover that investment back. And, um, that's, that's kind of interesting to me just as just like new reporting because it's unclear what was an iPad made later. You know, it, it almost, I, I, we were talking about this before. And I think the conclusion that we reach is like maybe it's a half step between the original iPad Pro and the redesigned iPad Pro. You know, where you go from. Yeah, the quote in the book is they developed a refreshed iPad with more refined curves and a lighter body that felt more natural in people's hands. So that can't be the 2018 model because (laughs) the 2018 model is more than a refresh and it introduced like super thin bezels and it introduced face ID stuff, right? Like there's no way that was ready in 2015. So it felt what that description in the book sounds more like a successor to the iPad Air 2. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there were years Um, like where the iPad design just didn't didn't change you know the, yeah i mean like <laughs> the 2015 is a perfect juncture for that because yeah. they came out with the 12.9 inch ipad pro which was the exact same design as the ipad that came before it the ipad air except now it was a 12.9 inch screen instead of the the 9.7 that used to be there the 2016 ipad pro came out with a 9.7 inch model that looked the same the 2017 ipad pro was the same design but now the the screens have promotion and then it wasn't until late 2018 that they actually had that that new design there so yeah. you, you easily went like three generations if not four generations of the thing looked the same yeah completely the same yeah and ipad history is fun because you know the original ipad you know huge in terms of just like the splash that it made um and then the ipad 2 i I, one of the things that stands out to me about the ipad 2 is a presentation by steve jobs where it's like we're not resting our laurels you know Uh, uh, we we could have done something that was minor but we have the ipad 2 was so different in terms of um, I mean, it was a redesign. It wasn't just a modified version of the iPad One. It wasn't just a faster version with a camera. Um, they they changed everything about it, you know, or at least the design of it all. But um, then the then the iPad 
three <laughs> was like that, but retina. And then the iPad four was that, but retina, but could handle retina, you know? And then you got to the air and, and I guess that's when it slowed down was, was with the, the first iPad air and air, air two, maybe air two is later. I don't know, but it'll, it all runs together. But, um, apparently there's an iPad out there that was never made. And that was in the book. What is not in the book. And I, I feel like, and this is what I put in my review is in any mention of sort of this understanding that you and I have that people who listen to this podcast probably have, which is that Apple's design from like 2015, you know, 2014, 2015, um, up until the last couple of years post Johnny Ive, you know, what wasn't all, all for the good. Like it wasn't all better. You know, there, there's, you could simplify it by saying it was function of reform. Um, it definitely runs in contrast with sort of this like magic aura around Johnny Ive as like this all, mm-hmm. you know, all creative being that no one can match. Um, which I, th- I think most of is earned from the iPhone era and before, and you know the watch lends itself to that as well. But for the but there's there's clearly you know you, you look at the the trends of Macs getting thicker lately. The the whole butterfly keyboard saga where Apple had just iteration and iteration of that keyboard rep- replacement programs from the day that they re- released the new version of it, you know and. It took just going back to the old design to uh, re- like fix that problem, yeah. and and maybe some of that I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much of it is is design, but you know, uh, or, or how much of it is like Johnny I've led. But there's just no mention of any of that. Of like, like that know. is crazy to me because like the whole narrative of the last few years of Johnny Ive's tenure is that he was doing bad stuff, and I wanted this book to either confirm that or deny it and say that it, you know. Yeah, nothing, like a perfectly good ex- uh, description would be Johnny Ive had uh, lost interest. He wasn't going to the company very much anymore, uh, or you know, participating in discussions. So the design team that was left scrambled together and they made stuff that wasn't very good. Now the book does say that Johnny Ive lost interest and mm-hmm. from other places, and he you know stopped turning up and stuff. But there's nothing to be like him not being there was the reason suddenly everything got worse. And so we're also left with the perfectly reasonable theory that Ive had gone. You know, even more down the line of you know, design is top priority. We're going to force through stuff like the keyboard situation, and it's going to backfire in a big way. Like the antenna gate problem, in a way, is like a precursor to that, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And so the fact that the book doesn't cover it, the butterfly saga at all is a big miss. Yep. Um, but other, I mean, <laughs> otherwise, uh, I I really did enjoy reading it. Um, I'm not a big reader, and so and I especially don't like to read about things that I know about or things that aren't aren't new to me. But this was, I think, I think so much of my enjoyment from this was it actually is just a really well put together, um, you know, capture of the last you know decade of Apple, and there are so many things that are covered from you know the Galaxy Note Seven explosion, <laughs> like how that was handled, to um, the San Bernardino shooting and how Tim Cook handled the, you know, the, the FBI and all of that. And, um, you know, it's everything that now, was, does it talk about like Apple's switch or shift or more prioritization of like the services stuff yes. and like, oh, yeah. That kind oh, of yeah. Uprising? yeah. Yeah. In, in that, in that services are kind of framed as the villain to Johnny Ive. That, mm-hmm. that, that one that, that, you know, that I think, I think the way that Trip Mickle puts it in terms of like, you know, clever writing is that, um, that Wall Street asked, you know, what is the next big hit after the iPhone? And, and if, you know, as much as the watch is success, it wasn't necessarily the watch. And that the answer is there's not just one, there's not, there's no big hit after the iPhone. It's just a bunch of 
different things that we can make money from and that the iPhone, it's ways to make money from the iPhone, you know, and that's what services are, are ways to extract money from the iPhone without making a grand new, new thing to replace the iPhone. I mean, the way and the Jordan way doesn't care about that stuff. He likes making. Yeah, that it literally isn't. Yeah. yeah, it's not his not his uh, area of expertise. Um, I mean, I think the ending is sort of Oprah <laughs> and and the, um, the the services event, you know, staying in billion pockets, y'all like and Tim Cook, like tearing, <laughs> tearing up about her presence there, you know. Um, so, yeah. And, and I I mean, I, I think I put in the in the book or in the book, book review that if um if you can get past the the subtitle that. Even so, the the editorializing within is light enough that the book should be palatable for even people who like you know me who are like really the subtitle. Um, and I was surprised that Chet Mickle tweeted out the story <laughs> with the summary of um, "Don't judge a book by its cover." Is like that's like the summary of my review in his in his eyes. So I thought that was funny. Um, so how much of the book, just roughly, is like new information versus a timeline of like a well written timeline of events? Do you know what I mean? Like. Yeah, yeah. Um, w- would you say it's like ten percent new stuff, twenty percent? Hmm. Well, it isn't like a big chunk of of the book is new stuff, but I think in each yeah. chapter there's a. Then this is what I put in the review as well that there's enough laced throughout the book. Uh, you know, there's like tidbits and across the there's the enough timeline. Yeah, there's enough reporting yeah. throughout the narrative that it's like okay, and keep keep you going. Um, I think toward the end it's less of that, but um, even something this is something I discussed with you offline weeks ago that I thought was interesting, but um. Even something as as simple as uh, a a childhood friend of Tim Cook, uh, sort of pressuring him to be more specific when he gave a speech that mentions a a childhood experience of riding his bicycle in a neighborhood in Alabama and witnessing a, sort of a KKK rally and cross burning in a black family's neighborhood, and he stops his bike and says stop, and then one of the KKK members reveals his hood, his face under his hood, and it's. Um, a church goer from another church that he doesn't go to. And then in the book, it says that Cook's childhood friend emailed him, like basically pressured him to say more about it, kind of almost discounted the story as that never happened, that um, that people from the community say that Tim Cook didn't have a bike at the time or that how would he know that it, if it was someone from another church? Um, and that kind of stuff was interesting because it's like, you know, we've seen those profiles. We've, we've seen that speech. We've seen those things. But um, what was new to me was that there was pressure from people who he grew up with to you know as as why would you say that why would you paint us in that picture um is that even true what you said you know and you know that that there's enough of that kind of stuff throughout the book that it's like you know it adds enough um you know new information to the you know just the context that we already know that mm-hmm. that you know kept me interested at least no it definitely sounds interesting but you just have to every anecdote you do have to like dip in the skepticism of this is coming from someone who is obviously a fan of Johnny Ive mostly, and maybe yeah, I don't, I don't know if uh, like it, like like the like the iPad twenty fifteen iPad story. It's got to come from like someone who was a, who worked on that design yeah. and was aggrieved that it didn't ship, for instance. Yeah, yeah, not not that the author is the fan of Johnny Ive, but that the sources who are willing to speak are fans, you know, or in that in that realm. Um, and there's enough ugly stuff in there too that makes you kind of think Johnny Ive is kind of a gross figure, not not intentionally, but just structurally. Uh, before you finish the book, it's like. None of none of it is super pretty <laughs> in, in retrospect. So, um, and then lastly, I'll say like I, you know, like I said, I don't know anything about Trip Mickle, but there is sort of this like anti Trip Mickle um, vibe in you know some part of the Apple community because he's a former Wall Street Journal reporter. Now he's a New York Times Apple reporter. But of course, with like any Apple reporting, there's if it's negative about Apple or if it's 
said in a way that Apple people don't necessarily appreciate or they see it differently. Like there is a negative characterization of Trip Mickle within our space, I think, that, you know, it that that makes people, you know, might make people look at this and be like, well, it's made up or like, you know, how true is some of the stuff? But in yeah. um, just terms of like, you know, if, if you just look at it in, uh, through the lens of, a reporter talking to sources and this is what they say, not what the author mm-hmm. says, then, you know, I think it's, it's fair enough. Yeah. And I, I like to read it or hear about any of this stuff. As long as I know where it's come from, then yeah. you can make your own judgments and compare it to other stories and think about it. Like, I'm not going to take it as, as raw fact because I don't take, like, we don't take the Isaacson biography as raw no, fact because yeah. we discuss with the TV stuff. So yeah. it's like, you know, you always have to wedge this stuff in the context that it's in, but you can't complain you can't complain about this stuff being published because it's like and like there there are some books that have come out um the yukari kane one i was gonna ask seen, Haunt, haunted yeah. empire yeah like uh haunted empire was like you know that was probably just a bad book and that was, was that was like two years after tim cook took over too so it was just like one of the things that i wrote in the book review is that um the question of you know is, is apple going to make it after Steve jobs it's just not very interesting now because we know the history we know that apple's doing well under the under the you know last several years and it's like it's like it isn't like it's an untested question and i think that's what made the haunted empire haunted empire like maybe would have aged better if apple didn't do as well over the last yeah. year in <laughs> a decade but yeah it, it, the haunted empire had some stuff that was so clearly wrong that the executives like came out against it pretty strongly uh and it said that apple was essentially doomed and you know now it's over and clearly yeah. that didn't happen. There, so, there are some like, things in the book, I think there's at least two mentions where a Johnny Ive spokesperson declined this telling of a story, like, you know, <laughs> but as I will say like the last thing I'll say when we'll move on is that there mm-hmm. is like the, the firing of, of Scott Forstall is told in a, in a way that it, it, it's, it's in a room when there's it's, it's Forstall at Kim Cook's house and nobody else is there. And may- <laughs> and maybe this is you know and so it's like well did Forshaw say this or like maybe it's people close to Forshaw who said this you know but yeah um, it just it made me wonder who, who <laughs> I'd love to know you know without reporting any like who are the people who who spoke uh, you know and contributed to this book but we'll never yeah know. if it's just like Forshaw and Cook in a room like where's it coming from because yeah. <laughs> presumably yeah. it's not coming from Cook right <laughs> finally this week happy hour is brought to you by Collide. Collide sends important and timely security recommendations to your employees right inside of Slack. That means they get custom security advice and information as Slack alerts, appropriate for Mac, Windows, and Linux devices. Get started by by visiting collide.com slash happy hour to sign up today. And as a happy hour listener, you can get some free swag by signing up. So don't forget to enter your email when prompted to receive your free Collide gift bundle after trial activation. Collide is perfect for organizations that care deeply about compliance and security, but don't want to overstep and be so invasive that they just go to the brute force method of locking down employee devices to the point of them being essentially unusable. So instead of frustrating the people that are working for you, Collide acts as an educational tool teaching security and device management practices and directing them to fix important problems. This includes things like getting developers to set up passphrases for unencrypted SSH keys, securely storing two-factor authentication codes rather than writing them down on a post-it note, and convincing employees to uninstall evil browser extensions that may be invading their privacy and selling their browser history to third parties. You can try Collide with all of its features on an unlimited number of devices for free for 14 days, no credit card required. So get started at collide.com slash happy hour today that's spelled k-o-l-i-d-e 
collide.com slash happy hour. Collide.com slash happy hour. Enter your email at that URL to get a free swag goodie bag after signing up to a trial. One more time, collide.com slash happy hour. Thanks to Collide for sponsoring the show. All right, Mayo, a few more things before we head off for this week. Uh, we're out of the book now, and we are into password management, I think. Is that what FIDO is? How but, fun! Is that what FIDO is? Yeah, that is that is in, in the realm of... Uh, FIDO is the dog tracker story. product from Apple. FIDO is the dog yeah. tracker, not an air tag. Uh, basically, FIDO, the FIDO Alliance is an open industry standards committee that was created to increase the uh, standardization of authentication between platforms and to reduce the reliance on passwords for authentication. Uh, and today, as we record, Apple, Google, and Microsoft have announced an expanded support for the FIDO standard, which should excitingly move us closer to an actual passwordless future for signing into stuff. Because right now, I very rarely actually type in passwords because you use autofill and you can do that via biometrics, by Face ID, or by Touch ID on the Mac, right? But each of those logins is still actually backed by a password. So you go to a new website you sign up for an account, they need a username and password. And you can autofill and remember your password credentials for next time using biometrics, but the actual password is required to get into the website, right? And so in this Fido future, a website could instead offer alternative signing methods that do not require a password at all. So essentially the website or the app would be saving like a token that connects to your like your encrypted um identification of yourself so like you know how like when you you log into uh something on the mac that requires system privileged access and you can like touch id to get in like you're not getting like a password for every single system access thing that you you accept it's like apple's using the authentication of your biometrics to act as like a key for you and the idea is with fido you'll be able to bring that authentication to third-party services and it would be supported across devices so across apple's devices across android across microsoft stuff um because right now there isn't really a way to make that happen and so with this commitment over the coming year it says we they expect that os updates will roll out maybe this will be part of ios 16 announcements right that websites apps will be able to hook into like system authentication so your biometrics your physical presence you typing in your pin code or whatever will then act as authentication for a website and so you'll be able to use a website without ever having to actually make an account with a password in it which obviously is way more which convenient but also way more secure because you don't have to worry about passwords getting leaked or someone guessing your password etc etc okay so this is something that each of these companies has kind of like mentioned on and off for like a few years and it's always been like the passwordless future, the incredible future, but there was never really a realistic path to that becoming a reality because you need companies to sign on and get behind a standard. And now it seems like maybe that's going to happen. We'll have to wait for this stuff to come out and then websites and services will have to gradually adopt it over time. But fingers crossed, this is like the best shot yet at actually getting passwordless, passwordless sign-in for in, in the mass market, yeah. which is cool. Okay. And then uh, this week, Apple announced that they're actually going to do an event for WWDC in person. And Oh, is this the first time they mentioned that? Yeah, first time. And they said that they're going to uh, show off the new developer center, which is... <laughs> I don't know. What is that? 
Well, Phil Schiller mentioned the Developer Center as part of his testimony in the Apple Epic trial that was early in 2021, right? And he said that they are working on this Developer Center that will be available on the campus uh, next year. And so this is apparently going to be the venue where they start to show it off. I think this will end up being similar to the kind of like accelerator campuses they have in like Italy and other places. There's one in India, there's one in Naples in Italy, I know. There's some other ones around, around the place where it's like you can get access to Apple technical support, you can get access to some Apple engineering, you can get access to some Apple design resources. They have on-device testing centers so you can like, if you're an indie, you can go in there and plug in your code to every single Apple device that's supported by the latest OS. So if you don't actually have to buy all the stuff yourself, if you can get to one of these centers, you can test stuff there on real hardware. Like, And then it's like a social meeting place as well for developers to kind of incubate ideas and maybe attract investment and stuff. And so I presume the developer center on Apple Campus is going to be similar to that. And it will also become the host for like any time in the future Apple needs to like bring people on site to give them evangel- to evangelize to them or give them secret demos and stuff, it will end up being in that location. And year round they'll host events there and like kind of like a today at Apple in an Apple store, but just purely focused on developer stuff. Um and so that is going to be one of the things that the people that get into the special all day experience uh on June sixth will be able to see for the first time. You can apply for it next week and they'll tell you week later if you get yeah. in or not. Yeah, you can apply from the 9th of May and they tell you on the 12th if you got in or not. So, I mean, W2C is getting closer. I'm, grant- and, uh, I'm granting you a little bit more rightness. Uh, oh, are you, oh, are you coming around to the... Because in this paragraph, we can't wait to connect in person. Yeah. Right, Apple. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I, yeah. Hmm. yeah. An all-day experience to watch the keynote and stay in the union videos. The only way I'll admit that it's, it's in person is if I'm there. <laughs> 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 that's that's the yeah that's 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 it mm-hmm. and then lastly apple music has come to roku uh which is i guess one less thing um you know roku being a big cheap way to get smart features on your tv one less thing that is an apple tv box specific feature i think fire tv had this a few years ago and it's on some mm-hmm. consoles as well but and of course the, the best experience is on the apple tv in terms of just not just you know how good it is but even just feature wise but yeah like um, i don't think you get atmos or you don't get special audio stuff and you don't get um lossless yeah. if you're not using apple tv what, box, what, what are they going to do this with apple podcast is this that's an apple platform only thing and it seems like especially with subscriptions that they that, that now they can monetize it they support apple podcasts on the alexa speaker the echo speakers right but that's about it, it. yeah and that's that predates subscriptions so that's just mm-hmm. you know yeah yeah <laughs> I mean, I think the next, the clearly the next avenue here is TV app on Android. That that's has to the, be. That's the biggest missing thing. That is the biggest missing one. And every time this comes up, people are like, "Oh, they are. It's just because they want to make you buy an iPhone." It's like, no, no. The, t- the all these services, they want to be standalone stuff. That's how they keep them growing. And on Apple Music, they've basically got there now, right? They have the Apple Music on Android. Uh, they have Apple Music on Sonos. They have Apple Music on third-party speakers. They have. It on Fire TV and Roku and everything, and I think the TV app is going to go there in that direction. It's just taking them longer, longer to get there, and then maybe they'll ex- they'll push out in other ways too. Like Fitness Plus seems like something they could obviously push to to more platforms, including their own, like the Mac, because there isn't a fitness app on the Mac still. Uh, arcade as a harder, it's harder to see how they could do that because you know you're literally writing games that run natively on Apple's 
devices, so it seems less clear how they would get that further out. Yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, podcast is a good option. Like, m- music is obviously the number one. That's their biggest service, so that's where it's got the most priority. But the the service that they're investing the most money into has to be TV Plus stuff, right? Because it's just billions and billions and billions every single year at the moment in content development. So an Android app for that platform has to it has to, it has to happen. Yeah. Okay. Uh, for it. I've I've just texted you something. I want you to look at it, and it's Ooh. it's um it's it's we're, we'll end on this. Let's back to the book for a moment. But you know Ben Stiller, right? The comedian and actor mm-hmm. director, um, the, the sur- maker of Severance. That's right. And because of Severance, yeah. this chapter in the book or this sec this 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 uh, section of the book made me just was just really funny that it was in the book about Apple. Uh, if, if you don't mind beginning uh, reading out a smat a smat a smattering of video down to Ives Pool, if, can, can you read that? I can read that. Okay, I want to hear this. A smattering of video toasts played on a big screen behind the stage, including one from former President Barack Obama and another from the actor Ben Stiller. In his video, Stiller stood before a white wall and explained that he and Ives' families had become fast friends after meeting a few years earlier. In the process, he said he had come to admire Ives' humility and heart. Ives grew emotional as Stiller spoke. Heather reached over and grabbed his left arm. I'd like to raise a glass to you, Stiller said. He stepped away from the wall and turned a corner into what the Ives realised with a shock was their kitchen in, and this is where my pronunciation is terrible, QI. K-A-U-A-I. Kauai? it's in Hawaii, I think. I wouldn't have a clue, okay. The audience rocked with laughter in their seats as Stiller approached Ives' refrigerator in search of tequila. Hey, Richard, Richard, Stiller shouted. Yes, Mr. Stiller, the housekeeper said. Where's the rest of the tequila? Stiller asked. I believe you drank it all last night, the housekeeper said. Stiller asked him to go out and get some more. Then he slipped out the kitchen door, pulled off his shirt, and dropped his pants. Totally nude, he dived into Ives' pool. <laughs> that's that's that played at Johnny Ives' fiftieth birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> what a gag! Wow. <laughs> so I, wild, I, yeah. I, I hadn't shared that with you before from the book. So there's there's that. That's I, that's hilarious. Yeah, I figured I figured with uh, the context of Severance, that's pretty good. <laughs> that is pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Yep. All right. Uh, well, one, one, you know, one cringe thing in the book, though, is that it, it does say at the end, like, that Tim Cook wasn't invited to Johnny's 50th birthday party. It's kind of the, <laughs> kind of the way of, like, saying, you know, there's his friends and there's his, you know, it wasn't a colleagues. It wasn't a Steve yeah. Jobs, Johnny I relationship that he shared with Tim Cook. So, yep. All right. That is the happy hour podcast for this week. If you enjoy the show, uh, please recommend it to friends. Uh, leave a rating or review. We have an ad free version in Apple podcast for $4.99 per month. You get the ad free version or you can pay, I think $49.99 per year. Forget it and get two mm-hmm. months free. Um, we also appreciate everybody who supports our sponsors that keep the podcast going. If you have any feedback, you can email Benjamin and I together at happy hour at nine to five Mac.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Apollo Zach and Benjamin. You're on Twitter at. BZMA. And we'll be back next week. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.